Our next speaker is a celebrated athlete, having won gold medals in the Australian and Pan Pacific Powerlifting Championships. His extraordinary story of leaving gang life and eventually pursuing God, coupled with his passion for health and fitness and God's plans for the world, have made him a sought-after speaker throughout the South Pacific. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rome Yulia. It's 1970s. My parents had just moved over to the islands,、uh, from the islands to New Zealand. The factories had just opened up. A newspaper article went to the islands saying, "Come to the land flowing with milk and honey." Many Polynesians came to New Zealand during that time, not just for themselves, but they were coming so that they could set up a life, not just for themselves, but also for their children. As a Polynesian growing up in New Zealand, I don't really know that that history. Didn't really ask or cared about that history. But Mom came from a a very humble family, a Christian family. My dad, on the other hand, wasn't so much of a person that was really into the whole Christian thing. My dad was kind of like he was living life on the fast lane, and he came from a family that was really well off. And so my grandmother used to. Always talk to my mother about making sure that she doesn't meet somebody that was outside of the Christian faith, because it would make it very difficult for her to kind of maintain her faith while being in a relationship with someone that wasn't part of her faith. So part of the, the strategy was from my grandmother was to kind of get my mother on a plane and send her off to New Zealand. And so she went to New Zealand. She was only in her early twenties, and she met my、uh, my father in, in the islands. But my father would follow suit, and he thought that it's like you know the islands—you can land anywhere、uh, in New Zealand and just ask anybody, and you'll be able to find someone. <laughs> my mother was in Auckland, and Dad landed in the south part of the North Island. And it took him a few weeks to finally、uh, finally find her, and when he did, she was a PIC Sunday school teacher in Auckland. And my mother describes that moment. It was like Dad and his friends had just stepped out of a pub, and Dad makes his way over to my mother and proposes to her there. <laughs> They get married, and my mother found out quickly why my grandmother encouraged her to kind of. Find somebody that shares your faith, because it's gonna you're, gonna you're gonna go through a lot of struggles in your relationship. And she did. She was a person that wasn't able to kind of practice her faith during that time, because my dad was his way or the highway. And my dad was a sort of person that,、um, you know, he he'll talk to us once, and then the next time it's、uh, it's the hose. Or the broomstick, or the nearest object that was next to you, that will come flying your way. So we were always on our toes when it came to our father. But he would never talk to you about things that he was proud of you about. You know, he would never tell you that he was proud of you for anything that you have accomplished or achieved. And so my parents were struggling to kind of find themselves in this new place called New Zealand. They couldn't speak English. They didn't understand English. They couldn't even read English. So 
when I was going to school, I'd come home and I'd have work that I needed to, uh, to do and I needed my parents' help. Uh, it was difficult for me to be able to do that. And so eventually I was one of those that just absolutely hated school. I failed in school miserably. And from my dad, I had this distaste as well for religion. I had this distaste for education. So I knew I hated two things growing up. I hated religion and I hated school. Eventually, I'd attend a school called Calston where everything changed for me. At Calston, I knew that I wasn't going to be good at school and I was eventually uh, kicked out of school. And I immediately joined gangs and got involved with that life of drugs and alcohol. I locked up twice. And I remember a time when I was really confused about who I, who, who I was as a person. There were times when I was contemplating suicide because I didn't know who I was and I was really frustrated with life. And no matter what I was doing or where I was, whether that place could be in a club or, or having a good time with my mates, um, there was still this kind of dark place within my own heart and mind. I couldn't really find myself. And I was really angry about that. I remember a moment when I get a phone call from a girl that I was in a relationship with. And one day she tells me that she was, um, she was having a baby. And I remember when she told me that I knew that I wasn't going to be a, a good father. And so I told her that, listen, we're going to have to get rid of it. We'll make an appointment and we'll just get rid of the baby. And I remember her saying to me, just nodding her head. She was a bit confused, but at the same time, she just kind of went with it. And I remember that time clearly because when we made the appointment that we were going to get rid of the baby, everything was already set up. We went through the counseling sessions and everything. And then on the day that we were supposed to go through with the procedures, I waited all day and it went, the time ticked right past our appointment time. And I remember ringing her phone and leaving a really nasty message on the, on the, on the phone message. And I said, that's it. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. The next few months, I get a phone call saying, Rome, I just want you to know that you had a, you had a baby boy today. And I was in a place where I was really kind of thinking like, should I, should I turn up? Should I, should I go and see you? And, uh, you know, eventually I came to myself and I said, you know, let's go. So I went with a few of my mates and we went to Waitakere Hospital. And when we went there, I remember just waiting to try and kind of think, what am I going to say? Prepare myself for this boy that I was about to meet. And when I walked into the, to the hospital that day, I still remember his face, his fingers. And I couldn't take my eyes off him because I remember telling my boys that I was only going to just be in and out and that's it. And what was supposed to be an in and out moment ended up being a two and a half hour moment. I sat there just looking at the boy and all of a sudden I felt like this, this, some meaning to my life now. I felt like there was, I had a purpose now and it was just, it was a crazy feeling like I was in, I was in love and I was just looking at this boy and I, I remember telling his mother that I was going to be there for him no matter what. And I was going to turn up, I couldn't wait, I was excited to see him again the following day, I finally had something to be excited about. 
I was so excited about that. I remember turning up every day just to see the boy. But my life was a mess and she couldn't be around somebody like me. And I had to kind of escape because there was just this darkness that I couldn't explain that was in my life. There were so many things that was holding me down from really enjoying my life. I realized that the same patterns I had in my life that was the same patterns that my brother had in his life and my father had in his life. And the reasons that we join gangs and do all these things is because we're trying to find some sort of meaning for life. And my father struggled in his relationship with us because he was still trying to identify who he was in this new place. My dad was a person that hated religion. He was driving to work one day. He had two items in the car. He had a beer crate and a potato sack, about 20 kgs. When his car broke down, he only had one choice of the two items to take to the nearest bus stop to get home. He took the beer crate. Took it to the nearest bus stop and he sat on that beer crate waiting for the bus. And then there was the sound of music coming from behind the the bus stop. And then he heard the voice of a preacher preaching an evangelistic series. I could just see my dad just cringing as he's sitting there in front of that bus stop, just waiting for his bus to finally get there so he could just disappear. But as he was waiting for his bus, his bus didn't turn up for another 15, 20 minutes. And when his bus finally turned up, he let the bus go. And he sat there. Preacher went on. As soon as the preacher had finished, he jumped on the next bus and he went home. My mother was thinking, where's he been all night? Following day, he goes to work and his boss says, I heard your car broke down, I'll take you home. He said, no, it's fine. I'll go catch the bus. Back at the bus stop, sitting there, listening. That evangelistic campaign went on for about three weeks. Dad sat there and listened to the preacher. And at the end of listening to everything the preacher had to say at the end of the week, Dad made a decision right there and then. When he made a call for those who want to be baptized and give their life over to Jesus, he walked in from outside with his arms wide open, walking into the building, and he gave his life right then and there. He went home, and my mother was like shocked at the fact that he had made this decision because he went home and went straight to the fridge and pulled out all the alcohol that he put there, and he started pouring it out. My mother came and joined, and they had this moment where they were both pouring alcohol out. (laughs) That's it. Today, I make a change. Every court case that my brother and I went to, dad would never come. He'd never turn up. My brother was in one of the most difficult court cases of his life. And my mother would be the only person to turn up to all our court cases. She'll turn up faithfully. We'll have gang members there and then there's just mom sitting there. But she'll be sitting there praying, you know. And I remember when I was in court looking at my mother and she was praying, I couldn't help but get frustrated because I was thinking, woman, you've been praying for years. 
And I don't know whether to feel sorry for you to get angry, but you keep praying and nothing changes. This is who we are. My brother describes this. He says he's sitting there looking at mum because mum walked in and she didn't walk in by herself. She walked in with my dad. And then some church folk turn up and my brother says, man, you should have seen them walking in, man. They were like soldiers. <laughs> Just walking in, you know, they sat down. And they're all praying together. And at a time when dad was not supposed to stand up. He stood up unannounced. And the judge didn't hold him back. And in a nutshell, my dad says, my son's failure is not his alone. Not asking you to give my son a second chance. I'm asking you to give a father a second chance. Judge couldn't make a decision. She said, you know, I have to do this next week. Come the following week, my brother was released with bail conditions. And he said, you know what? I prayed and one of the things I prayed about was I was going to give my life to God if he got me out of the situation. And by the grace of God, he's got me out of the situation. I'm jumping on a plane and I'm going to Australia. And I remember during that time, I was really trying to find a, a way to escape my darkness. And I remember just thinking that I was, I was always going to be the person that I was. Just before you earn your colors back in Calston, you got to bleed for them. And when you bleed for it, you die for it. There's no way out. For me, I wanted out. I wanted something else. I was desperate for change. There was a time for me where I was just like true blue New Zealander all the way. And when anybody spoke to me about Australia, I'd say, I'd never go to Australia, ever. But I was desperate for change. I was desperate for change. And I remember ringing up my brother and I was trying to find out where he was. And when I finally rung him, I got through to him. I said, where are you? And of all places, I was thinking maybe in Sydney, he could be in Melbourne or maybe he's in Perth or Brisbane. I don't know. I asked him, where are you? He said, I'm in Kurumbong. <laughs> Kurun what? I'm in Kurumbong. And my brother didn't believe me because he knew what sort of person I was when I said to him, I'm coming to find you, give me the address. And my brother gave me the address and he says, oh, yep, okay, whatever. I'll see you when you get here. I purchased my ticket and I got ready to leave. And I jumped on a plane and I remember just saying goodbye to New Zealand and goodbye for good. Well, I finally get to my brother's house. He was living there with his family his wife and two kids, and they had a humble home. Everything was different. I said to my brother, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? This, this, this place, I mean, like, look at it. It's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre area. It's in the middle of nowhere. But keep, keep in mind, this is Kurumbong back in 2005. I mean, Kurumbong today, you know, with Morris said, you know, they're spoiled with the plaza there and all the others, those of you who are familiar with that place. We didn't have that when we were there. I mean, when I swore, when I looked at Marcet for the first time, I felt like I just stepped into the 20th century. The only thing that was flashing with lights was Bilo. Eventually, my, my brother said to me, you know, you've got to just stay focused here and just find something to do and be active. You know what? I could not free myself from my own suffering in my own mind. But every time I looked at my brother in this unknown place, 
in this small unit, I couldn't, for the life of me, wonder why is he happy? Why is he not worried about? Why, why is he not thinking about escaping this place? You know, I stayed with him. I ended up working, and after working there, I decided that I was gonna try and connect with my my son and his mother. I wanted to find them, and eventually I did. But I had to go back to New Zealand to get them. 2006, I went back to New Zealand, and I came back to Australia quickly because I didn't want to be in New Zealand too long. I just wanted in and out, just get there and leave. When I got married in New Zealand, my wife and my son, we came back and we found a place in Newcastle where we could just start life again. My relationship with my father was still broken, you see. And it wasn't until my father got in contact with me, and he said to me, "Son, I want to come and spend some time with you." I go pick him up from Sydney. He came and we spent time together. Started sharing to me, and he opened up about so many struggles that he went through in his life. Both of us had this moment where we were just talking and sharing our hearts. We laid our hearts on the table. Throughout my whole life, I've never had that conversation with my father. We never had that sort of relationship, and now for the first time in my life, we've got this relationship. And we spent every day together for the next three months, and it was good having my son there as well. Still, there was this place in my mind that I couldn't escape. When Dad left, we're at the airport, and he looks to me and he says to me, "Son." Because I kept on asking him, "Is there anything I can do to make up for lost time?" He kind of looked at me and he said, "I don't want you to. I, I need your money. I don't need anything. But if you could do one thing for me, that young boy that saved your life, I want you to do a full circle and just turn your life towards God. If you can establish a relationship with God, that's that's all I need." Dad went home. I went back, and I decided, you know what? That's it. If my dad can be transformed by that book and the person of Jesus Christ, I need to find out, find out who he is for myself. Yeah, I had a picture of who Jesus was, but I didn't really know him for myself. So I remember looking for a Bible at home, and I came across a Good News Bible. It was awesome because it had like pictures in it. And as I was looking through the book, I started reading, and I decided I'll start in Genesis, and I'm not going to move a single verse until I understand the verse that I just read. And as I was reading through the book, I was going through Genesis, struggled through Exodus, and eventually died in Leviticus. <laughs> I said, I don't even know what I just read. I remember ringing up my wife, and I said to her, "Hey." Can you find out whether there's a nearby library somewhere around here so I can just kind of look up some of these places, kind of、uh, find out where I can get some help in understanding this book? And so she tells me there was a, a a Catholic library down the road that I should go and check out. So I did. Those guys taught me how to use commentaries and concordances, and I started looking through the Bible again. And now I'm studying through it word by word.、And、then I had these. Avondale College students turn up to my house, 
And we're going back and forth. And as I was reading, I discovered, hey, the two things I hated more than anything, school and religion. Now I'm studying religion. And I tell you, the number one thing I hated more than anything was reading. And now I've just looked at all the books I was reading. I couldn't believe I just, just read William Durant and Edward Gibbons. And I was like reading all this history. And I said, I didn't even know that existed in me. And I couldn't put books down I needed to read and find out more because I needed to find out for myself. And as I was putting two and two together from what the Word of God said, I came across the book of Daniel. And when I was in Daniel, I was in Daniel in 2007. It's 2017 today, I've not put the book down. I've been through and through the book of Daniel, looking at the prophecies of the book of Daniel, and I was flipping, flipping right through the pages, reading up on what other commentators thought about uh, some of the events. And it was about two, between two or three o'clock in the morning, I remember waking up my wife and I said to her, have you read this? Daniel chapter 9. Have you seen it? I kid you not, you have to look at this. My wife was like, okay. I started drawing up graphs and I was doing, uh, you know what? You would have thought my room was uh, the room of a madman. With all these timelines on the floor and pages, I was scribbling through things. I couldn't stop. I couldn't, I, I couldn't move away from the book. And I knew then God was calling me for something greater than myself. You know, it's interesting. I went to college and I signed up to study. And I was sitting there my first day at college. I was trying to get my brain to function. I've been out of school since I was 15 and I was reading and I couldn't, put, I couldn't do it. Started leaning on God for the first time again and I said, God, you're going to have to help me get through this. And I struggled to do it, but I didn't give up on him. And I know that he didn't give up on me. On my third year, no, second year, my mother hears from a relative that there's a speaker in Sydney with your last name. Last thing my mom remembers of me was I was locked up. <laughs> Involved in so many different things, crazy things, and mom rings me up and says, Hey, I just found out that you're speaking somewhere in Sydney. I just want to know, what are you doing? I didn't tell mom what I was doing. I wanted to first graduate and then tell mom what I've done. So I failed her all my life. I was hesitant to say something, but my wife said, just tell her. My mom on the phone, I said, mom, your boy's in college studying a bachelor of theology. She was like, really? I said, yeah, it's my second year. I'm going to be going on to my third year soon. Quiet. She's just quiet. Then she said in my language, thank you, Jesus. After 20 plus years of prayer. Thank you. Well, that was amazing, huh? A little different from some of the other presenters. Rome, I want to invite you back out, and uh, we've got a few questions for you. Sure. I'm a little nervous standing next to you. Is that okay? Because 
Yeah. All good. Um, why did you call your talk Blood In, Blood Out? Exactly. When I first wrote my story down, I was thinking about that word, blood. Blood was thicker than water. My family was blood, but then at times family failed you. Then I found blood within gang life. There were guys that were involved in gangs that, had, that knew the meaning of loyalty more than those who were actually related to me. And I would often hear these sayings, Rome, I'll die for you. I'll die for you. What does it mean to be a gangster? I'll die for you. I'll lay my life down for you. Wow. And I said the same thing back to them. Out of the four guys that we started this whole journey together through gang life, only two of us are alive today. And so the whole thing of like, I'll die for you, I'll lay my life down for you. When I heard Jesus say those words, I'll lay my life down for my friends. I thought, man, Christianity is the biggest gang I've ever seen. Mm. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what in your fathering now reflects what you have learned from your experience? Ah, <laughs> you know what? Because I grew up in a kind of a strict home, my father was just like so strict with everything. And there was a lot of violence at home as well. Um, my wife, she's like, can you just be a little bit more hard on the kids? <laughs> and for me, because violence and aggression was around me growing up and it was part of the reason I went down the wrong path, I want nothing to do with it. I don't even want to come near it. Like I pull away from it so much that um, when, my, when, when my children have just worked my wife up the wall, she's like, do something. I'm like, you guys better listen to your mother or I'll, I'll, I'll deal to you guys. <laughs> and my daughter's the first one, you won't do that, dad. <laughs> and so they, they, they know me like that. So yeah, uh, that's good. Uh, what is your heaviest ever bench press? And what is your heaviest ever deadlift? And what is your fitness routine in a normal week? <laughs> the heaviest bench press is 200 kilos. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, that's in competition. I have benched uh, 220 outside of competition. I have deadlifted uh, 320 wow. kilos. Uh, in competition, we were deadlifting 292.5, 300 kilos. Um, squatting. 280, squatted 300, uh, training re uh, regime every week, squats, deadlifts, bench, uh, incorporated snatch, and um, the clean and jerk. So it's become a tool for ministry for me um, in our community where I'm ministering. We've opened up our garage and created a gym in there where people can just come and train for free. That's fantastic. And we've built relationships there, and we've even started a church. No from kidding. That, so. Incredible. This is a little off script, Rome, but do you think if, if I opened up my garage and started lifting weights, that people would come in and maybe I could start a church from that? You think? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, Possibly. <laughs> look at the difference in our arms. And I'm not a weakling. <laughs> Uh, one more question. How was your relationship with your mom, mom, <laughs> through all those tough years? 
Mom's been my anchor. She's the one that she's she's been a prayer warrior for as long as I can remember. If I go back as far as I can remember, three years old, mom prayed over me. That's one thing I can remember about mom. My siblings, she was a woman of prayer. And I called her like the prayer assassinator. You know, she would would like put somebody on her prayer list. And uh, she put my brother on a prayer list and my brother was baptized into the church. And she put my sister on a prayer list, my, my father on a prayer list. And I was the last one to be put on a prayer list. And here I am. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Whew. Why don't you just thank Rome? Uh, Yulia, he will be back actually tomorrow. We're looking forward yes. to hearing from you again. Thank you. Bless you. God bless.